You're listening to an ACA podcast. Hello, my name is Bianca Winata Putri, and I'm the Public Programs Coordinator at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. It is my pleasure to welcome you to ACA's 2021 lecture series, Experimental Institutionalism, Contemporary Art, and Curatorial Ecologies. I would like to start by acknowledging the people of the Kulin Nations as custodians of the lands on which ACA is located. I extend my respects to elders past, present, and future, and to all First Nations people tuning into this program. Across seven different topics, ACA's 2021 lecture series explores an array of artistic, exhibition, curatorial, editorial, and institutional models that are shaping contemporary art and curatorial practice in these radically changing times. Bringing together international and Australian speakers in each session, the series seeks to explore alliances that can be drawn across borders, as well as the ways in which we might work and learn differently in response to the specificities of locality, place, culture, and community. For this sixth dialogue in the series, we are delighted to welcome and introduce curator Jose Roca and artist Kek de Souza with a focus on ecological practices and challenges of sustainability. Jose Roca is a curator and artistic director of the 23rd Biennale of Sydney, which is set to open in 2022. He's also artistic director of the nonprofit contemporary art space, Flora Ars Natura, in his home city of Bogota. He was the Estrelita B. Brodsky adjunct curator of Latin American art for the Tate London in 2012 to 2015. And for a decade, he managed the arts program at the Museo del Banco de la Republica in Bogota. He was the chief curator of the 8th Biennale do Mercosul in 2011 in Porto Alegre, Brazil, and co-curator of the Polygraphic Triennial in San Juan, Puerto Rico in 2004. And he is also the co-curator of the 27th Biennale de Sao Paulo, Brazil in 2006. Jose's work is heavily influenced by the relationship between art and nature, and the 23rd Biennale of Sydney, titled Rivis, which means streams in Latin, will enable rivers, wetlands, and other salt and freshwater ecosystem to share dialogue with artists, architects, designers, scientists, and communities. Kek de Sousa is an artist based in Sydney on unceded Gadigal land and works with temporary architecture, food, mapping, and dialogical projects to explore the poetics and politics of space. This investigation of social and spatial environments is influenced by formal training in architecture and experiences of radical spaces through squatting and organizing. Keg often creates sites and situation-specific projects with people with an emphasis on knowledge exchange. These often manifest as temporary architectures that become framing devices to host pedagogical platforms, centering voices that are often marginalized for learning about place. Jose and Keg, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great honor to have your involvement in our 2021 series of dialogues and to focus today on ecological practices and challenges of sustainability. Without further ado, I'm delighted to hand over to you, Jose, to start our conversation. Thank you. So thanks, Bianca, for having us. Uh, thanks, Keg, for uh, joining me in this conversation. Okay, so Rivers, the 23rd Biennale of Sydney. Um, I was brought in with a project that dealt with rivers and the ecologies they sustain. 
and I decided to work with uh, a team of local curators that took my original ideas and discussed and changed until we have a project that re um, reflects more our collective thinking than the original idea that I had. Um, but I think we should address, address a, a more fundamental question. Are Biennales sustainable? They, they seem to be a sort of contradiction in, in terms because uh, Biennale by definition is a short-lived spectacular event that brings artists uh, and other participants from all over the world to a place for, uh, for uh, two or three months. Um, and then uh, uh, many international visitors come uh, to see uh, the show and then it disappears uh, as it came. Um, so how is that sustainable? Is, is, uh, uh, is it possible to, to have uh, Biennale as a sustainable endeavor? So those are uh, issues that have um, bugged me for quite a while. I have been uh, working in the arts for all of my life and I have participated in several biennial type events that you evoked in the presentation. Uh, so this is the ninth biennial type event that I participate in. And uh, I've learned a little in each time I, I do one of these. So uh, you, could, you can say that this is a sort of uh, composite of different strategies that I found worked well in previous projects. So the uh, rivus, as you said, means a stream or a brook or a, an irrigation, irrigation channel in Latin, but it's also a, a, a root that gave birth to many other words, including, for example, derivation, the idea of something that derives into something else, or, for example, rivalry. It's interesting because the word um, rivalis originally meant those who share the water from an irrigation channel, from a rivus, uh, but then it came to mean those who share the same lover. Hence the connotation of that rivalry has to these days. So this idea of water and conflict is at the core of our project. But of course, by, when we started working together, uh, many other themes started to appear, besides the idea of the river as the um, harbinger of so-called progress, but also the natural avenue for the uh, colonial enterprise, but also things like rights of nature, voices of nature, and uh, non-human timeframes the ideas of how uh, indigenous communities have lived in harmony with waterways. So their stories of creation and their ancestral knowledge can be and uh, should be taken into account whenever you think about these issues. Uh, weaving as a way to incorporate uh, material culture from the societies that live in relation to the waterways uh, assembled ecologies, how the natural and the synthetic are no longer separated by mixed, but mixed, and how to think about that. And in general, the idea of decentering the human. 
So even though Rivas, the Biennale, will have the title that refers to the river, it won't be, it won't read as a river Biennale or a water Biennale. It will resemble more the delta of many thematic possibilities than the source. And that's, I think, something that, that um, is important to keep in mind. It will be uh, a composite of many different ideas uh, that will come uh, to fruition in the work of the participants. And I use that word instead of artists because only some of them will be artists. The rest will be designers, people from communities, uh, architects, uh, activists, and of course, rivers. Because if uh, some rivers have attained legal personhood and can be represented in court, why wouldn't they be able to be represented in an art exhibition? So we expect to have some waterways uh, represented in the Biennale. So the Biennale is trying to follow the river, very literally, starting in Parramatta in Western Sydney as, a, as an outpost there at, in uh, ICE, Information Plus Cultural Exchange, uh, um, a more community-based center, and then into the harbor, where we will have several um, uh, venues, uh, including the cutaway at Barangaroo, which is this large cavernous space uh, that is in a, a byproduct of a, of a, an urban large urban project of recuperating the head uh, in that part of the harbor. We will have the Pier Two Three at Walsh Bay. We will have the MCA, um, the Museum of Contemporary Art. We'll have uh, the Art Gallery of New South Wales and um, the National Art School and some standalone uh, projects in between. So we will have uh, most of the venues clustered around the harbor um, so as to provide the visitor with an experience that can be done by foot and certainly uh, with uh, public transportation. And uh, so we, you, you as a visitor will be able to visit all of the different venues uh, that are between 10 and 20 minutes um, from each other, um, as opposed to maybe another alternative, which would be to have venues all over the place. But I feel that um, that kind of analysis, which I'm, I've done in the past, uh, are difficult to experience um, for the public. And they work well in the PowerPoint. They say, oh, we have 24 venues here and there, but for the viewer, it was actually very difficult to experience. So we will be clustering the works in conceptual territories that we are calling wetlands. So uh, there are several uh, themes that cluster the works by the participants, uh, like for example, still and stagnant waters, works that deal with um, with um, uh, dams or opposition to building of dams, but also deep water ecologies at the National Art School, ideas regarding uh, um, deep time 
and primal waters at the MCA or briny environments where salt water meets fresh water at uh, Pier 2-3 and so on and so forth. So there will be these sort of thematic clusters that will help the visitor uh, orientate herself in the exhibition. These we are calling wetlands. And we have, I, I will show uh, some examples of these wetlands. Some are clearly a wetland or a representation thereof, or even not even a representation, a presentation, because this work done by a duo of an architect and an artist, a weaver uh, from Peru, Ana Teresa Barbosa and Rafael Freire, uh, they mapped a wetland outside of Lima and then uh, harvested uh, the fibers which were uh, left to dry and then with a family of weavers, the Goicochea family, they created the shape of the wetland, they recreated it uh, and then it's an experience for the viewer where you can visit um, the place and you will don these capes because there is water being sprayed as mist that is filtered by the by the by these uh, woven filters made of the same fiber uh, that creates the topography and filtered on uh, stone filters and then the the water is eventually collected again and then treated I mean not treated let's say it's uh, tested and and you as a viewer are uh, able to drink it. So it's uh, an experience of how a wetland fulfills or performs a role in purifying water, collecting and purifying water in, in the natural uh, world. So this is an example of a, of a work that is in itself a wetland. And I will show uh, only some projects that we're working on. This is Gal Weinstein from Israel. He's done several projects regarding the depiction of large-scale uh, uh, cartographies as seen pro from above. Um, uh, in this case, he is recreating part of the Moray River Basin, and uh, he takes uh, the idea from these um, uh, terraces, where uh, like um, agricultural terraces, so he will be creating um, like these shapes that uh, are um, in relation to the Moray River. And then these are like trays that we are uh, trying to make in recycled plastic that are filled with uh, coffee grounds. And little by little, the coffee uh, starts to grow mold and it changes over uh, time so as to create uh, a, um, a territory that is in constant flux and change because of natural processes. Once the exhibition is over, uh, the provider of the recycled plastic will take the work again along with the coffee and will uh, recycle it into other, you know, fiber that can be uh, used for other projects in the future. So the idea is that the Biennale is thinking about its own conditions of possibility, even during the fabrication process. 
We will include uh, works that deal with uh, caring for country because sometimes the best way to preserve uh, the territory is just to leave it alone. So when I was in Alice Springs visiting the Ita Nyara Many Hands Art Center, I came across this very interesting work where the descendants of Albert Namajira are intervening uh, disused um, uh, traffic signs and repurposing them as surfaces in which to paint their uh, watercolors, but also keeping uh, and, and uh, changing the meaning of the signs uh, as a warning for uh, those of us who are not from um, their territory that the land needs to be respected. Uh, we will also have works that are done by recycling or repurposing uh, objects. Uh, this is Leroy New, who will create a flotilla of large-scale vessels done with recycled uh, plastic bottles. So one more plastic bottle in an artwork is one less in the landfill. Um, and uh, so this, they are, they are quite amazing and, and beautiful. So we will, we will have this at the cutaway, which is the main exhibition venue for the Biennale this year. We will also have uh, works like uh, Duke Riley, who, who creates this very beautiful and intricate drawings about histories related to rivers and other waterways, but he's also created these fishing lures with the debris that is washed by the river or the sea. It is uh, uh, at the same time very endearing and very sad to see all these elements that are just thrown into the river and that can never be um, uh, degrade, uh, I mean, bio, they are not biodegradable, so they won't enter the system again. So we will present a number of his lures and also his trademark uh, way of treating uh, plastics that, you know, things that he finds in, in, the, in the rivers as if they were scrimshaw with um, inscriptions uh, that deal with the main polluters in the industrial uh, realm. So that's Duke Riley. We will also include many uh, First Nations from not only from Australia and different regions in Australia, but also from other parts of the world, like Abel Rodriguez, an elder from the Nonuya uh, people in the Colombian Amazon jungle who creates these intricate drawings that are in reality uh, a sort of calendar that uh, shows how the flooded forest changes with the seasons, what are the animals that come, the fruits that um, grow. Uh, so it's a very beautiful, uh, but as, at the same time, um, very, um, let's say it's not only a beautiful drawing, but it's actually science because uh, we tend to consider the knowledge of first uh, peoples as uh, folklore, but in, in fact it is science and, and very much so. So this uh, is uh, 
is, uh, you know, he learned uh, how to draw late in life when he was over 70, and that enabled him to uh, be able to communicate all the knowledge that he had amassed during the, his entire life as the namer of plants in his community. We will have other types of, of, uh, of science. This is Alexandra Daisy Ginsberg, who works uh, with uh, intel uh, artificial intelligence. And this, for example, uh, deals with extinction, uh, but how new technologies promise to take us out of the mess that we have created. So when the last uh, known uh, white rhino died, uh, I think it was in 2016, there was speculation of if, based on the DNA, we could resurrect uh, this extinct species. But what really uh, this work addresses is why wouldn't we uh, just prevent species from becoming extinct, rather to try to resurrect uh, a species that was uh, alive and, and, uh, and kicking just uh, minutes ago in the evolutionary uh, scheme of things. So we will present this work that is called The Substitute, where the machine, the artificial intelligence, creates this being, digital being, that learns from its environment and becomes more and more refined, little by little. We, we think that we can, um, that, that, we, that the materials that we use can be considered as uh, projects. So this is just an example, Diana Scherer, a German uh, artist living in Amsterdam who has devised a way to coax the root of uh, grasses, like oats, into growing in certain patterns. So she grows them uh, and on, on a sort of a, a template and then cuts them uh, and then they grow in, into these very beautiful and complex patterns. So they weave themselves uh, as opposed to having a raw fiber and having it woven by someone. They weave themselves together. So we, will, we are looking at different examples of materials, new materials that uh, deal with um, collaboration between humans and non-humans and also um, that are carbon sinks. So this work not only is carbon neutral, but it, it's actually carbon negative um, because it is a carbon sink in itself. Also rewilding. Uh, there are some works that, um, that uh, are working be beyond the realm of art, like Nazia Mestawi, a wonderful artist that died very young, um, recently and um, and that uh, created this very very powerful work called one beat one tree where you as a viewer uh it's like a digital forest you step on a mat 
and by doing so you plant a seed, you, you can see the seed coming down there from the video, and once the seed reaches the ground, you can encourage it to grow with the movement of, of your body until this digital tree is grown and then it is incorporated into the digital forest. So it's not an animation, it is being created and incorporated into the forest, by the, but the protocol states that the institution that shows this piece engages itself to plant one real tree for every virtual tree planted by the viewers. So by presenting this work, we expect to be able to plant many, many, um, many trees in uh, a location still to be defined, certainly in Western Sydney. And as I said, uh, participants need not be humans. It, uh, they can be um, non-humans in this case. We are uh, working with the custodians of several rivers and other bodies of water worldwide, some of which have attained legal personhood, or shall we, shall we say riverhood, uh, so that they can speak to the public in a very direct way. So this is a short example of a, a project that I did some years ago where a person from the community addresses the viewer a cappella in, uh, with a song that she composed and that text tells the, the issues that the exhibition is trying to communicate. So I'm going to show just a little bit. Con una gran emoción Hablo de la tierra mía de los montes de María, esa que es una región. Con una gran vocación agrícola y campesina, de gente alegre que estima la tradición que nos nutre entre Bolívar y Sucre, dos zonas que se combinan. Estamos entre el Caribe y entre el río Magdalena y eso nos llena de pena porque algunos nos conciben como un corredor que sirve para un sinfín de actividades llenos de mil mezquindades y eso nos trajo violencia desplazamiento, inclemencia, despojo y otras ruindades. So what we intend is to approach, and we're doing that right now as we speak, to approach the custodians of these rivers and waterways and uh, ask them if they are willing to uh, speak on behalf of the river in different forms of vernacular poetry. So we will have one of these river voices as the host or hostess at each one of the venues of the Biennale. So, so far I have spoken about what the Biennale is about, about the what of the Biennale, but I think we should also talk about the how, because you cannot talk about sustainability and not be sustainable. Uh, it, so, so one of the premises of this Biennale is to try to reflect on its own 
condition of existence, how we can lower our carbon footprint, how can we reflect on the task of doing exhibitions, which of course pollutes, which of course creates a large carbon footprint. So we are addressing these issues, um, you know, uh, like uh, uh, in integrally, uh, and I will uh, talk about the process uh, and also the exhibition. So first the process. The mantra of this Biennale is to use what's already there. So we are not trying to invent the wheel. We are trying to see what's already there and try to improve on it. That means, um, so for example, I decided to come here to Sydney for the entire duration of the process as a gesture of commitment to the project, but also to lower my carbon footprint. But also, I thought that uh, unlike other biennales that I worked on and the usual uh, process in this type of events, I wouldn't travel uh, around the world, you know, to identify new practices. I've already done that for 20 years. I've been doing that. Uh, so I would consider that as something that is already there. Conversations that were started many years ago that can be continued. And uh, so, so, so yes, to become as local as possible. I also decided to work with a team of local curators. So I bring to the table my travels and my conversations with artists and they do the same. And that way we are sharing an enormous wealth of, of information that uh, enables us to curate uh, an exhibition without having to travel much. And this was uh, in my original proposal long before COVID was even, you know, something. This was in November of 2019. Um, so that's that. We are also relying on uh, a network of colleagues that are pointing us to the right directions, to interesting practices worldwide. As I said, to build uh, what's already there and uh, also the idea of the Vinale being a catalyzer. So instead of inviting someone and telling them, listen, this is the theme of the Vinale, would you create a new work in relation to that theme? we are identifying works that are already in process that have been there for a while and provide the opportunity for that long-term research to crystallize in a work for the Viennale. We are also granting continuity to some, to some projects that were started in the previous Viennale uh, because uh, some couldn't be done for different reasons, including COVID. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, allowing them to attain their full potential, potential. and we are working with other institutions in, uh, in Australia and also in the region uh, to be able to co-produce so that, uh, you know, in such a big country like this one, not everybody can afford to travel to uh, Sydney to see the Biennale, so parts of the Biennale will be shown at other institutions after the Biennale closes uh, and we will co-produce these small spin-offs of parts of the Biennale. So that's the process. 
and, and regarding the exhibition, we are thinking of different strategies to reduce our impact. One is, as I said, to reduce air travel, so we are only bringing those artists that uh, are that, that without whom we cannot have the works. But even for those, we have to have a plan B in case they cannot travel because one never knows who would have expected to be in a three-month lockdown um, some months ago, nobody. So things are changing all the time. So we uh, will have a small group of artists, hopefully, that will come and produce pieces here, but the rest will be done without their presence, uh, following their instructions um, uh, and uh, coordinating uh, virtually uh, the production. We will try to reduce freight by producing locally and also doing a local production of the works or reproduction in the case of exhibition copies. We will try to, uh, um, to have a, a, a calculation of the carbon footprint of the exhibition. This is a previous show that I did and we communicated this, the carbon footprint to the public in the form of a large of an illustration, a large um, uh, drawing and uh, like a poster that people could take home. So you could, you, you were, it was an exhibition about art and sustainable energy. But the first thing you, you uh, saw as you, as you entered the show was the calculation of the carbon footprint of the exhibition itself. And then each work had, um, had a, a label where we calculated the carbon footprint had we shipped the work from its place of origin and the significantly reduced uh, carbon footprint by producing it locally following the artist's instructions. So uh, yeah, reduce waste by uh, integrating uh, processes during uh, the production of the work or the installation, but then also thinking about how the work will be dispersed once uh, the exhibition ends, because sometimes you do something and then it's a, let's say it's an exhibition copy, the exhibition ends and then you are left with a huge waste that nobody really thought about and then it is not only a cost, but it's a cost for the environment. So we are looking at each project uh, to make sure that we know what will happen with it after the exhibition closes. Um, we will have as little as possible museographic intervention. We will try not to build walls. We will try not to paint walls if possible. And here you will have to deal with institutions that are very keen in having everything perfect, everything just, you know, freshly painted. Uh, so it's not easy uh, when you work with other institutions because you might have an agenda, but they have theirs, and it's a, a question of negotiation. So try not to paint, try not to build, use whatever is there. If we have to build maybe something soft that can be recycled or repurposed, and in general, try to go with the flow uh, when water encounters an obstacle, it just finds the easiest way, the path of least resistance. So 
we will have we are working with the participants in proposing new sustainable not polluting materials and processes and we launched uh, uh, we launched um, um, uh, a challenge for uh, for new materials with Cicada Innovations, uh, which is a, it is a technology startup, uh, to be able to identify new sustainable materials that can be used as exhibition materials. And we will um, present those as part of the Biennales. So, for example, Diana Scherer's work will be more like featured like a work of art, let's say, so it's not going to be the room divider. It's a project in itself. Same with Jesse French, an artist from Melbourne that has been working with seaweed and creates very beautiful uh, materials. Uh, so we could potentially use these large scale sheets of bioplastics as room dividers, and we might, but they are still um, featured projects, whereas what we really intend to do with the material challenges is to be able to identify a viable uh, alternative to plywood, to uh, sheet rock, uh, drywall, uh, cable ties, bubble wrap, and other materials that are customarily used in the um, exhibition uh, realm but that are uh, sometimes very polluting and, and cannot be recycled. So this is uh, more or less what I wanted to share with you in terms of how a biennial, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, by its definition, very difficult to, um, to claim as a sustainable endeavor, can at least think uh, about its own impact in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Bianca and Aka, for including me in this dialogue. And thank you, Jose, for sharing your ideas behind the Biennale. I really look forward to experiencing it. Um, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and waters I live and work on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded. So I want to begin by positioning and locating myself. So I'm a person of Goan ancestry. I have um, brown skin with long black curly hair that's tied up and I'm wearing a blue denim shirt and my pronouns are she and her. And I'm in my studio, which is a warehouse in the old Everly rail yards. So this site, you'll probably hear the trains go by at some point, but this site is also the site of the first general strike in Australia in 1918 for a shorter working week. So it's got this incredible um, working class history to it. Um, I'm on unceded Gadigal land. My artistic practice developed from my architectural training and experiences of squatting. So I often tell this as it helps to understand why I'm interested in exploring the politics of space in my practice. Um, my work is also a way for me to open up an understanding of my own experiences of colonisation from having my own ancestral lands colonised in the 1500s by the Portuguese and living as a settler on other people's stolen land. My work is an ongoing learning about place. 
And today I wanted to speak a little bit about the ecology of relationships in relation to place. So this picture is a picture of the Himalayan blackberry. And I started thinking a lot about blackberries when I was in Vancouver and staying in an artist residency that was located in the old Coast Guard's house in the Barad Marina in Kitsilano. So this site is Squamish land. And in 1913, these, the First Nations people here um, were forced off their land. So they had two days to pack and were forced onto a barge that was sent up the river. And the colonizers had expanded their settlement from the other side of False Creek, which is now downtown Vancouver. So the foreshore is now thickly covered in invasive blackberry plants. And so when I was there, I would constantly see people picking berries um, by the bucket full on their walks along the seawall. And along, this runs along the marina, which is full of wealthy people's boats. So when I arrived there, I started reading about the Himalayan blackberry and the history of the site. And I quickly realized how tightly both of these things were related to each other. So the blackberry, which is thorny and harsh, was described on one website about weeds as overshadowing, uprooting and displacing native plants, as well as being highly invasive and difficult to control. So the language used in this description instantly brought to mind the way the blackberry grew like dominantly and wildly and it, how it reflected the aggressive colonial displacement and dispossession of the Coast Salish people from the very same land that blackberries now occupy. So this land had been markedly changed through colonisation, including the diverse native ecosystem that existed there. And the complex relationship between the plants has shifted, so a dominant species has taken over. So as a way to continue this learning, I worked with Laurie Schneider, who's, in, who's an Indigenous herbalist, to run tours of the foreshore of the native plants and a foraging and black, blackberry jam making workshop. So during the workshops, we discussed displacement through the history of this place. But I wanted to tell this story more as I think how we create sustainable relationships and practices is related to this metaphor of the blackberry. So. We need a diversity of species and voices. We need to centre Indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing. And we need to question power and privilege that occurs through processes of colonisation and capitalist production. So much of my work is based around creating pedagogical environments to learn about place. And I believe that in order to build sustainable relationships, we also need to rethink how power often works and whose voices are heard. So, over 2020 and into this year, I developed a new project and doing this during a pandemic brought new ways of building relationships into my practice, such as long form conversations over Zoom, which pre-pandemic were pretty unusual. Um, so building relationships takes time and the pandemic in this weird way offered me just that. So this project um, was part of the refuge program at Arts House in Nam. And Refuge ran over six years and looked at how artists can create community preparedness towards climate crisis. So it is important to recognise that as a six-year project, some of the relationships that I built through my previous Refuge project in 2009, the North Melbourne School of Displacement, were built upon. So some of the, some of the people who participated in that school or who I met through it were part of this new project. 
So when talking about sustainability, I think it's important that we're not starting from scratch each time. Um, we make a project by acknowledging and building upon what we've already learned, including those relationships that we've built. So as someone who collaboratively ran tours in my own neighbourhood of Redfern for 10 years, I know the importance of this. So the relationships developed over this time grew deeper and crossed over and built other projects that I made in the area. So to take a sidestep for a moment, these tours, the Redfern Waterloo Tour of Beauty, are ran collaboratively as part of Squat Space Collective. And this project took tourists on key sites around the neighbourhood on a bus and bicycle tours to meet with local stakeholders and discuss impacts of the recent and ongoing gentrification of the area. So this is an image of Ross Smith who spoke on every single tour that we ran over the decade. And he spoke a lot about the community in the Waterloo public housing towers and how they support and look after each other. One story that he'd often tell was the story of the jury, uh, which was a group of elderly residents who sat in a communal area at the base of the towers who kept tabs and gossip on everyone. So the importance of this group in the towers was highlighted in Ross's story when he explained that if someone didn't come down at their usual time, the jury would be the first ones to notice and someone would be sent up to check on them to make sure they were okay. So these local stories were important to share you know, building and expanding on these relationships. So the tour ran in conjunction with various exhibitions and conferences from 2005 to 2010. And again in 2016, as a series of 10 year anniversary tours as part of my work, the Redfern School of Displacement, where Ross was also invited to speak. So my work in the area culminatively built my own learning a place through relationships with people from my local community that I'd built over this decade. Combu Mary scholar Mary Graham describes that relationships of place are multiple, complex, interrelated. Everything connects in country and in place. So it is essential to build an understanding of histories as well as your relationships to them. As mentioned, my practice is this process about learning about place. And with my refuge project, this was a deep learning process for me, especially as someone who's not located in the place that it was based. So this project was called Not A Drop To Drink and explored issues of water scarcity in relation to food security and sovereignty, which are two of Australia's biggest concerns in relation to climate crisis. So before I go further into this project, I wanna contextualize my work a little. As someone who trained as an architect, I'm now interested in how creating and presenting architecture outside the profession can allow it to be developed from a fresh perspective. So more driven conceptually by issues of social and spatial justice and removed from usual utilitarian parameters such as shelter or service. When I did my architectural training, I was pretty much taught only by white men and there was no acknowledgement of the stolen land that we were designing for. So this connect and also moving into a squat shortly after studying that became highly public has shaped my practice to focus on spatial justice. So this alongside my other lived experience of being educated in a suburban Australian public school with a deep lack of diversity, where I felt a reluctance to speak out in fear, in fear of being singled out. So these experiences have led me to use temporary architecture to frame dialogues through hosting pedagogical events inside as ways to centre voices that are often more marginalised.
Bell Hooks describes the margins as a site of radical possibility, a space of resistance. And by centering these voices, it is a way to build this into my practice. So here, architecture and pedagogy meet in this third space as a way to explore spatial and pedagogical alternatives outside the prof commercial profession of architecture and formal learning institutions. Um, for me, it's a way to build relationship, to build the relationships and the dialogues that I want to hear and be part of. The ecology of these relationships is one which questions and challenges colonial and capitalist structures and explores spatial justice, which, to be clear, in Australia can only be achieved through Indigenous sovereignty. So returning to Not A Drop To Drink, the temporary architecture houses space for conversations over a series of meals relating to water scarcity. I thought I'd describe this project a little as an example of how I experiment in my practice with these ideas I've spoken about of temporary architecture and radical pedagogy. So the ingredients for these meals were really important and they came out of this series of long form conversations I'd had during that long development. And these conversations were about food security and sovereignty in relation to water with a range of people with various knowledges. These conversations were recorded and I worked with sound artists Madeline Flynn and Tim Humphrey to create the soundtrack of these voices to continue that learning when the meals were not taking place. One of the people I spoke to was senior Bunwurrung elder Noeet Carolyn Briggs, who previously ran a First Nations restaurant and also helped advise and guide me on this project. Other people included a water law policy specialist, a botanist, a farmer, a native plant researcher, a mycologist and, and others. During these development conversations, I also asked these people to name some ingredients that spoke to this theme of water scarcity. And then I shared these stories and their ingredients with Torres Strait Islander chef Norni Baru, who's the head chef at Mabu Mabu. Norni then thoughtfully crafted a menu that responded to these ingredients as well as their stories. So when we spoke about the plan for the meals, we discussed um, the ingredients that related to water through land and the ones that related to water through rivers and oceans and how they were connected. So when the meals took place, while we ate, the ingredients served as these beginning talking points um, for conversations about water scarcity. As a few, few of the people I'd previously interviewed were present at each meal, they were able to begin speaking to the ingredient they had chosen and share why they had chosen it. And this was a way to continue the conversations that we had started together, um, but extend them to a wider public who were present at the meals. At the beginning of each meal, I also made it clear that the space prioritised First Nations knowledge systems and marginalised voices, helping to centre these voices into the conversations. I also asked that the dialogue would be collective and the guests were seated around this very large circular table to help facilitate this type of discussion. The table also had drought tolerant plants that were pressed within it and the guest speakers were dotted around the table amongst the public and both these things also helped to open up the conversations. Interestingly, not all the ingredients chosen were drought tolerant. For example, Erin O'Donnell, the water law policy specialist, had suggested the Murray Cod as they critically need clean river systems to survive. But the Murray Cod is unable to be bought commercially in Victoria as it is protected. And so there was this noticeable absence off the plate, um, which in many ways made it more powerful. Um, 
the mackerel, which is a more sustainable fish, was used. And this led to a conversation about the health of the Murray-Darling Basin, rivers and oceans and their connectivity, and also to the personage and rights of rivers, as Erin has published a lot in this space. Um, I often use food in my practice as a way to explore these larger generative themes. And food is central to everyone's existence. It grounds us in place. It is grown or lives in the lands and rivers that connects us all. Everyone has a connection to food, so it can open up dialogue around larger global issues whilst being connected locally. We can discuss wide themes such as displacement, labour, colonisation, through social, cultural and economic relationships to food. In Not A Drop To Drink, the pedagogy was driven by food and aimed to help us rethink what we eat in relation to water scarcity as this increases into the future. It also inherently opened up conversations about place. This draws us back to those themes of colonisation and capitalist production through thinking about the way the empire's reach has dramatically changed what food is eaten in this country today and the impact on relationships to land, food production and the climate emergency. So I think now we need to rebuild links and ecological tools driven by First Nations knowledge that have been overshadowed by colonial and corporate processes. I think there's much learning in the way we think about different institutions. So while I experiment with architecture, architecture and pedagogy in my practice, I wouldn't be able to neatly do this within the profession of architecture or in a school the way it is possible in a contemporary art context. So just to end, Building relationality through sustainable relationships to each other and place is what we must centre when thinking about the future. Thank you and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Keg, and thank you, Jose, for your wonderful presentations. I've got heaps of notes and questions, um, but we'll try and go through them um, one by one. One of the first thing that I pick up on both of your presentations is this idea of relationality, of building dialogues and conversations and relationships with communities and that when we are talking about sustainability it's not an individual thing it's very much a collective spirit it's it's, it's all about bringing in different voices and learning from each other so one of the things in, in in your presentation jose about biennale making and curating as well as your art making um cake is this idea of creating sites for gathering and knowledge sharing and, and really allowing that to be part of the process um which led me to think about time in all of this um that that we do oftentimes we get so bogged up with deadlines. And as you said, Jose, Biennales being a very short period of time, um, every two years, we are bound by time. Um, and I just wanted to ask, how do you approach time in your individual practices in relation to sustainability and in relation to art making and curating? Um, and maybe, Jose, you want to start first before we pass on to Keg. Sure. Um, yeah, so as, as you said, Biennales are by definition short-lived and there is only a very precise time between one of the, and the next. Uh, so uh, um, theoretically two years between one incarnation and the next, but in fact, it's never like that because by the time you start working and you choose your team and you decide what your theme might be and this and that. Uh, so it's really a shorter period. <laughs> so it doesn't lend itself for a more deep engagement with the community. So all that you can aspire to is to identify 
those practices that are actually doing that and invite them to show a phase of their um, long-term research as part of the Biennale. And I've done that in exhibitions that I've done in the past, including biennials, where we identified practices sometimes that were in urban space or working with specific communities uh, and gave them the visibility that this kind of large scale events have to highlight what they are doing, but by no means this can uh, replace uh, the work that they do in the community because it's there and it, it's predicated on deep engagement and uh, over time. So I think that exhibitions can only highlight something that is uh, being done, but not very often are they able to instigate or to be the, the point of departure for this kind of uh, projects because just by the by the the way they are you know uh, put together it, it is not easy for them to take on long term projects yeah Thank you. I mean, that was brilliant. And one of one of the things that that I quickly read to time is that you are sort of extending time from that Biennale two two year model, where it's not about getting a head start, but you're also um, potentially having co the idea of co production or having um, the exhibition have a longer life or have a different conversation and form after its delivery is one way of extending time. In addition to highlighting the importance of having time in building relationships and creating deeper engagements and similar to you Keg before I pass on to you I, I immediately thought of your kind of um temporal uh, temporary architectures or temporary um, structures whereas it's sort of a moment in time bringing together voices and then you know there is an, an end time to it similar to to the uh, not a drop to drink installation um but also that it has informed your practice further and uh, your works forthcoming yeah I think um yeah time's an interesting one especially when you are working so locally um I think in some ways there's a resonance between the way that I work and the way that Jose is structuring the Biennale where when it is place-based you are you know you're utilizing people who are from there and who know the place in a more deeper way so often with my practice I draw from those knowledges and I kind of use my practice as a way to bring those conversations and those knowledges to the centre and um, highlight those voices. So it's a way of just drawing these connections um, about, you know, between people and between place. Yeah, um, I, th I think that that sort of anchor on place and sort of coming into place new and learning and sort of um, getting to know the communities and centering their knowledge and their experiences in both of your practice is something that is absolutely related to this idea of sustainability, right? Because we are talking about working with communities, we're talking about longevity and thinking about the different ways that we can be vulnerable together and support each other um, as we move through this climate crisis or it, these, these changing times. And I guess it's also not easy for, for you to enter a new space. So my next question is more on what are the, some of the challenges that you face um, in entering 
or in coming into a new place? And how have you navigated through that? So I think every place is completely different. Like I often start by sort of learning about a place a bit, um, usually by the, through the internet before I arrive there, just on a very light level, just to get an um, just a just a slight understanding of place. But as soon as you get to a place, you realise how most of that information is probably quite use, useless to what you're about to do. And so, for example, I did a project in Peckham in um, South London uh, just just before the pandemic, and I I just did a little bit of reading. And um, when I got there, I realised that the people who were going to teach me about the place was the kids I was working with. So everything that was structured there was around their experiences of their estate. They lived on a housing estate called Pelican Estate and everything and the way they moved through the area, the way they experienced the area, the language they used um, was all so specific to these these this particular um, place that they were living. And um, they were the best ones to be able to, you know, teach me about place rather than anything else. Um, so focusing on those relationships that I built with them through um, some some art making workshops, actually. But that was just a way to share their knowledge about um, the, the place that they lived in. Right. In, in my case, uh... And not to talk about the Viennale, but other projects that I that I've done in, in the past. Uh, Flora, which is this independent space that I run with my wife in, in Bogota, that is currently in hibernation due to COVID. Um, anyways, we started in 2012 as short-term residencies on a small uh, country house on a small town called Honda on the Magdalena River. And we brought artists from all over the world to have month-long residencies. And then we uh, showed the processes uh, in Bogota because we were aware that in one month, you can hardly get to know a place. Uh, and it's very, very unlikely that you will be able to produce a finished uh, artwork. So we, we let them show whatever they wanted, mostly process. Um, but uh, so that was that, and I thought it was interesting. We thought that we were providing the experience that the artist would uh, uh, sort of take on later to produce something that we wouldn't see probably a year after for another exhibition that he or she was invited to. The experience in Onda, Colombia would be the impetus for that work that we would never see. And that's okay, we provided the experience. But then we thought maybe we can do something different. Maybe what we need to do is longer term residencies. So that's what we shifted into and we created Escuela Flora, like Flora School, which was uh, a group of 20 plus artists from all over the world that were given a studio for one year and uh, an independent study program. And they uh, didn't live there, but we provided them with some funds to find a place to live. But it was a total commitment on their part because they came for an entire year to Bogota and on our part. And the dynamics were different. Uh, whereas Onda was like a, like a shock therapy type of experience. You know, you come to this 
country, which is Colombia, which is very difficult, to this place, which is very hot and humid and difficult. And then you have an experience there. Whereas if you came to Bogota for a year, you could immerse yourself more in the local artistic community, get to be one more of, of you know, the local artists in a way. Um, so those two temporalities are interesting because they yield the different things in the end. You know, I don't know whether this is better than this, but it's certainly different. And um, so I think I learned a lot uh, by doing those two types of, uh, of uh, relations with time. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, also, you pick up on a very important point about education, um, Jose, and, and I find that is such a central part of, well, in art institutions, but also art making, curating, public programs. And I kind of want to focus on education a little bit, because one of the key, if, if we are talking about um, the environmental crisis or the climate crisis is this idea of, the, of climate education, um, which is something that is introduced more and more to school curriculums, uh, but also in the rest of the world, there are now schools that are centered on forests or being delivered in forests. Uh, and I was wondering, Jose, if um, education is something that you are also thinking of as part of the Biennale program and how, how would you approach that? Yeah, certainly. Um, in in the previous Biennales, I've created a space uh, that ideally would bridge my incarnation of the Biennale with the following one. So creating a sort of independent space funded with monies from the Biennale, but that would remain after the Biennale closed. So we did that in Mercosul. Unfortunately, it stayed open for one year, but then closed after we, we the Biennale closed for different reasons. Um, but I do think that that's important. So uh, in, in, um, for my project for the Biennale, I proposed a space that was to be called the Waterhouse. So it was to be a permanent space for the participants and the public to meet and where to articulate our curatorial thinking, but also the learning program. So we, after working a lot, we realized that Sydney doesn't really need that space as a permanent fixture, but rather the Waterhouse could be a conceptual space. Uh, so we are working with the education and learning team of the Biennale into creating a very intense program uh, that uh, aims to engage the general public, children, schools at different levels working through the, the artworks uh, in what um, artist and educator Pablo Helguera calls transpedagogy or learning through the art as opposed to uh, mediating the art for the public. So we have, uh, we will launch uh, uh, shortly the, the education and uh, education learning program for the Biennale that has been put together by the education team, particularly Leah Smith, who is a wonderful uh, educator. That sounds really excellent. And that concept of the trans pedagogies um, and learning through the art instead of, the, you know, talking about the art and then educating that way is, is, is yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's so on point. And I also feel like that's, something that you do, Keg, as well, with your practice, that it's um, especially um, creating 
sort of temporary architectures and moments of dialogues and conversations. Um, and that idea of learning through the art, through participating in your installation seems to be quite central. Um, could you share a little bit about that too, about the role of pedagogy and, and education in your art practice? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think I, I mentioned that, um, you know, my my primary schooling in a, you know, a suburban school in, you know, Western Australia was a very undiverse experience. And um, it really shaped the way that I think about education because I often, you know, had the answers, but I was too scared to speak out because I didn't want to be singled out because I was the only person of colour in my class. So um, it really it really kind of highlighted for me and, you know, that filters into my practice now how who gets the space to speak and who's, whose voices are often the most dominant in those spaces. So uh, that's, that, is, that kind of um, is my approach to the way that I think about pedagogy. So I want to centre the voices that I want to hear and that I think um, should be centred and are the ones that are often not. So um, as a way to learn about place, I want to hear from the people um, that are experiencing, you know, some of these larger generative themes that I explore, such as gentrification. So I want to hear from the locals who th that process of gentrification is directly impacting. And I think, I also think that the way that you come together and the, the experiential nature of, um, you know, an event, say, um, around a meal, that experience is... Um, when you're situated either in place, so like the tours and you're located in a particular place or in an installation where it is around an event, it is around a happening, something that's happening, um, the way that you remember these events and the way that you learn is so felt, um, you know, and it's this real situated um, experience that unfolds. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, that's, I feel like education in both of your practice pedagogy is also coming back to our previous conversation about the collective voice about bringing community and about process really it's it's really not about just trying to, to get to the end result but I feel like often it's also kind of changing and continuously go, growing um, and this is kind of you touched on both of you touch on this very slightly so this might be kind of a whole other question um, but I wonder what are your thoughts on technology when we talk about sustainability so Jose you touched on um, for example uh, collaborating with Kikada is that right Kikada on yeah, yeah um, I mean that's so fascinating I'd love to hear more about that but also about um, this idea of technology enabling us to connect this way, to deliver this lecture online, to have these conversations. Um, but also, so yeah, to, to keep it kind of succinct, this question is what do you think is the potential, the role of technology when we talk about sustainability in the arts? Um, and maybe Jose, do you wanna start first? Yeah, sure. So uh, as I said, uh, we partnered with uh, Cicada Innovations, which is this, um, um, incubator for new, you know, technologies to be able to identify, you know, inventors. It can be artists, designers, uh, architects, uh, engineers, scientists that are looking at, at new ways of doing things. And um, 
So ideally, this technology will enable uh, us to change our practices because it's very difficult. Sometimes, say, for example, you, you, you say there will be no plastic in this Biennale, but then you are working, you know, part of your event is hosted at a museum that has a contractor for uh, the coffee and then that contractor, you cannot have a say on, on what they do. So it's very, very difficult because it has to be structural. It cannot be a gesture. Gestures are important uh, symbolically and then they, they can change people's minds but it has to be coupled with uh, regulation. It has to be coupled with things that encourage um, or discourage uh, certain uh, ways of uh, doing. Otherwise, it will remain in the grand gesture or in, in, uh, in um, let's say, it won't go further than that. So I think technology is important. In fact, you know, Zoom has enabled us to have really, really um, meaningful conversations where, with people that are far apart uh, and uh, we, we has saved us kilometers and kilometers of flying. If that was possible, let's, let's say for the sake of discussion that we could fly anywhere, I would still not have flown uh, to do studio visits unless I was pretty certain that I wanted that practice to be part of the Biennale because I think there are better ways to use the limited resources that we have. So I think technology can indeed help us, you know, uh, bridge this gap between what we want and we can do. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like we could connect with a whole lot more people and not do that kind of travel using less of our resources, but also keg will be interesting in terms of working with communities. Like, Cause I know that's something that um, we all struggle with not being able to meet in person is having that kind of face-to-face -face connection, especially when you work really closely with community. How, how have you find technology um, helping or what are some of the challenge, challenges in your, um, in your opinion? Well, when I was um, developing Not A Drop To Drink, when I, I went, I first went down there for the development in um, March 2020. So it was just as the pandemic kind of hit Australia. And um, I basically had to come back to Sydney. And it was, I think it was actually great for my project in some ways that having that development and having this realisation of this shift in this way of working of the ability for people to be able to um, be so generous with their time like also because it was lockdown, but being able to have these really long form conversations that with people who I'd never met before and develop these relationships over a long period of time because it was just, um, you know, a, a video chat away. And it really enabled us to go deeply into, um, deep into conversation, which I don't think... I think when you sort of meet people in person, sometimes it can be a little bit awkward if you're sitting, you know, if you're meeting them at a cafe, you're, not, you're probably not going to sit there for an hour and a half talking about water scarcity. You're like, you might, but um, it, you know, you sort of get that feeling that you're meant to move on, um, you're meant to clear the table kind of thing. But where it, 
as if you're in your own home, then you have this ability to be able to sit there and keep talking and, you know, you sort of can lose track of time. Um, so in that way, I think it really, really helped things. And it really, I think it shifted. There was this kind of paradigm shift that it has occurred where people just think differently about travel and about doing projects where you can do projects remotely, um, you know, and more efficiently, more efficiently without actually having to be there in person. And I think it's just people have shifted the way that they work and the way that they think during this time. So Zoom and other visual technologies can help us in the process, but I do believe that um, the bodily experience is important in art. So uh, there is no substitute and I've seen enough 360 views of uh, galleries and museums during the lockdown to see that I don't want to see one more. Uh, I want to see the real thing, to be there, to be able to chat with friends, to uh, discuss. Uh, so um, I think that technology only goes um, a, a certain way, but then there is the centrality of the bodily experience. And especially I feel that uh, since the exhibition is a medium, you have to work with that medium and that medium requires a presence in space and time and the interrelation between the different works. That's what we call an exhibition. So I, I truly believe that uh, there is no substitute for presence in when it comes to experiencing art. Yeah, I have to completely agree that and echo that. Whereas, you know, I was talking about how amazing it was in the development, but I was also lucky enough to be able to envision not a drop to drink between lockdowns. And that project just wouldn't have been, been able to happen um, in the virtual, it's just, it's just can't happen. It's a meal-based conversational event. It just, I mean, even speaking like this, it's, there's always these awkward pauses, these technological glitches that happen even between that stutter our conversation and in reality, you know, you know how to na navigate those and, um, you know, continue a conversation from there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wish we could all meet in real life and I hope we can all meet together soon. I mean, I'm from I'm from Jakarta, Indonesia. So our, our custom when we we are meeting someone or catching up with someone, it's actually it's like an hour of just warm up and eating and then you get to the deep conversations and you just stay for like five hours minimum. <laughs> so I feel like that's something that I do miss is that kind of interaction um, and also with exhibitions and in the arts and working with community is really that bodily experience, as you said, um, uh, Jose, is so central. And there are ways that technology can support what we do, but there is something that it just cannot replace. Um, and speaking of time, I feel like we've, you know, I, we can go on and on. Uh, and as you said, uh, Keg, with Zoom, it suddenly feels like it's already two hours past, which is what we're doing now. Um, so I might wrap up with a final question. You know, we started with a question about how you approach time. Um, and I'd like to kind of come back to time in a slightly different way. Um, so my question would be, uh, what are your hopes for the future um, of a more sustainable arts ecology? 
um, how would you imagine the future of the arts? Uh, and maybe Jose, you can start um, and then we can pass on to Cake. Yeah, uh, I read somewhere that the Arts Council in England is only granting, uh, giving grants to those institutions that can prove that they are taking steps into having uh, more sustainable practices. Uh, they have to say where they source their um, energy from and so on and so forth. But it'll take time to change institutional ways because there is nothing more uh, difficult to change that institutional inertia. Thanks, Jose. Um, and Keg, we'd love to hear from you as well. Um, I, don't, I don't. I don't quite know how to answer that question. Um, it it feels like so so big, and there's so many. Like I, I think the only way to answer it is to think about the imaginings of what is possible. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, by changing slow incremental in, in incremental ways, we can kind of think about more sustainable practices and processes. And I think, um, you know, not just in a, um, environmental sense, but also in, um, you know, in, through people as well so thinking about ideas of like labor and you know what is a sustainable practice when we think about labor but you know that's a whole other discussion as well absolutely absolutely i did thought about labor and about um sort of funding even that's that's something how how do you make as you, as you propose jose how do you make a biennale sustainable not only in this environmental sense but also in in labor in funding in operational i, I think the word sustainability is so expansive and we could go for another hour <laughs> um, and I, i'd love to maybe have a part two or we could absolutely have another conversation after this but um i'd like to thank both of you for joining us um this is such a great discussion again i feel like there's so much more that we can expand but i i absolutely loved everything that you shared and you're doing really incredible things um and yeah i just wanted to thank you again and i hope we can meet in real life soon. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Bianca, and thank you, Jose. Great discussion. Thank you.